Praise indeed. Please uh, turn in your Bibles to, we're going to look at a couple of passages before you get to sit down. 1st will be from Genesis chapter 2, and I'm going to go ahead and start in verse 8 actually, and then we'll get to the river and we'll skip down to 15. In Genesis 2.8, the Lord planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord made every tree grow that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now a river went out of Eden to water the garden, and from there it parted and became four river heads. Verse 15, Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden, to tend it and keep it. And the Lord commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Turn forward a long way to 1 Peter. Chapter 2 and verse 24. Who himself... Jesus bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. Lord, this is your word. And what do we know about God's word? Forever it stands, Lord, and forever may it be ours. May we bask in the sunlight from it. May we take refuge in it. May we treat it soberly and with honor all the days of our lives. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. So note to self from last time, I've got a highlighted bulletin up here so when we finish up, I know what to do. Good morning. So if you made it to when the clock struck 12, and then you're probably not here this morning, right? Or you're under 50. If you're in the third group, my hat's off to you. You watched the clock strike 12, and you yelled, Happy New Year. You turned to your wife, gave her a kiss. If you're not married, I hope you knew whoever it was you gave a kiss to. <laughs> and you sang a song. Old Lang Syne, right? How you say that? It goes like this. Should old acquaintance be forgot? <laughs> Should old acquaintance be forgot? (laughs) The words mean long, long ago. It's a Scottish poem. Robert Burns is credited with writing the song. And it's asking a question. 
you know, should we look back at time? Should we look back? Should our old acquaintances be considered? The first verse is really the only verse really worth thinking about. The rest of them are talking a little bit about that, and then they talk tilting a pint or whatever after that. But it's a, it's a, it's a good question for us to consider, and this morning I do want us to look back as we begin the new year, look back a long way to a time long, long, long ago. It's not a once upon a time. It's a fact. It's not a fairy tale. A time long, long ago. In Genesis 1, we have the first account of creation. We see uh, God by His very voice speaking and matter becoming. But what's interesting when you look at the account a little closer, you see that God separates, God divides. There's a lot of, he separates the light from the darkness and the evening from the morning, the waters from the waters. Have you ever watched Bob Ross paint, The Joy of Painting? We just, I just, he's been... They, they made a show with Bob. He did over 400 shows for the public broadcasting system in the 80s and early 90s. And I've only seen him for like two or three days. Fan came home from college, and right now, you can go home today and watch on Netflix Bob Ross, The Joy of Painting. Van told me the title on Netflix is Chillin' with Bob Ross. <laughs> but it's amazing. As he has his palette before him. He's got a big fro. And as you watch the painter, he's perfected what's called a wet-on-wet wet painting. And suddenly this canvas is before him and he takes the paint and blah, blah, blah. And he's, he's divided the canvas. Oh, there's the sky. And here's below it. And swoosh! Oh, black line right across. And a little tug and a little that. And oh my gosh, he's created the cliffs of the mountains. And then, boof, swoop, plop. And he's got the meadow coming before this great mountain range. And he's just divided this canvas. And you can almost, it's, it's, if you don't know who I'm talking about and you never watched it, it's a homework assignment from the pulpit. Because it will... <laughs> It will allow you to just see our Lord in a way in Genesis 1 masterfully creating on a universal scale as He divides the waters. He divided dry land from the water, divided sea from land, divided plants into their kinds, lesser and greater lights. And you just see this majesty as it rolls up before us in Genesis 1. Time and time again, God declares during this wonderful creation that it was good. If we turn to Genesis 2, we see some tweaking and fine-tuning. A lot of you younger ones won't remember, but we used to have TVs where you had to get out of your chair and, and you had to go clunk, clunk, clunk <laughs> to change the channel. We just couldn't cruise through 300 channels in 15 seconds. And once you got to the channel, you, you pushed in on the knob and you tuned it a little bit. And if you had a really good TV, 
you had this piece of plastic behind that, and that was your fine tuner. <laughs> and you grabbed that fine tuner, and you really got the picture. Well, Genesis 2 is sort of this fine tuning. We learn, you know, that, hey, there's, there's no rain, so God makes the water come from below. There's, there's no one to till the ground, so he's going to give man that charge. The man has no place to reside in, so he's going to create this garden. And the garden's going to be so luscious and so beautiful that his normal watering system isn't going to work. So he creates rivers, four rivers, to feed this garden. And God's named everything to this point. But now he's, the animals have no names. And he, lets, he works alongside man and they name the animals. And then God himself says, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper. And so then again, his, in his dividing and separating way, he puts man to sleep and he extracts a rib, divides man in a way and creates a woman. And God brings the woman before man. And I used to teach my kindergartners in Sunday school to say, what did Adam say? Hubba hubba, right? <laughs> he says, wife, woman, that's what I'll call her, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. Bob, the painter, does the same thing. He's created this beautiful landscape, and then he goes in and finds, we're going to put a happy tree right here, blah, 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 and a waterfall. The same way of fine-tuning the creation. We get in particular, though, the name of two trees. The tree of life and the tree of good and evil. In regard to one of these trees, there's a command attached to it. Do not eat of this tree. Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it you will surely die. So for all of the good, the good of creation, the good fine-tuning, yet there's something here that certainly is not good for man. We are not to eat. And if we do eat, it's off limits and you will surely die. But it is a glorious time. It, this is the year, not the new year. It's, in a way, the first year, right? It's the beginning, and it's glorious. We're in the Garden of Eden, paradise. But it's a time of prohibition. Do not eat. Adam and Eve exist in their state as, righteousness, as righteous and just and pure. They have a, um, the law of God written on their hearts, and on their minds. And they have a covenant relationship with God that's one of friendship. It's a covenant of justice and grace and love. And if fulfilled, there's this promise of life as, as signified by the tree of life that's there in the center of the garden. Adam and Eve received grace to persevere in their state of bliss in this paradise, and they are able, if they so desire, not to sin. But they're not given grace to ensure that they would not sin, or that they could not sin. Adam was created in the image of God. He had a, a 
perfection, a holiness, but not in the highest level. And certainly never will be equal with God. He's immortal. The, the seed of death does not reside in him. There is no birth to that seed within his body. Within the, in, within the covenant, he has the ability to obtain for himself and his descendants a higher state of life, an eternal life with God. If he's, if he's obedient to God, we shall see it. Unfallen Adam exists with a free and innocent will. There's no bias acting upon him that would tilt him toward evil or tilt him toward good. In this way, unfallen and innocent Adam differs from those who descend from him. And we know that in the end, our parents fail the test. And the forbidden fruit is partaken of, and thus securing their fate and their state and our fate and our state to be one of sin and death. Before God even arrives on the scene, we see the impact of the sin. Their nature has changed. They've lost their innocence. Their eyes are open, and they know they are naked, and they're ashamed. So ashamed that they cover themselves, and they run from God rather than run to God to enjoy His company and the communion with Him. They hide themselves among the trees of the garden. It's a new sort of age, a new year, a new state. Things are different, but not an improved age at all. It's the age of sin and death. Our parents have sided with the devil, and they've rejected God. And God will now deal with them in a different form of grace. The order of things, the way they knew them, forevermore has changed. God's first question is, where are you? And man says to him, I heard your voice in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. God's second question is never answered. Who told you you were naked? Because there is no answer. We just knew it. It's in our bones. It's in our heart. It's in our soul. It's in our nature. And we're ashamed of who we are before God. Then God turns his attention to the serpent. There's no questions for him. He's an instrument of the Satan. And it's a Satan's punishment for him. God busts up the alliance that seems to be forming between this fallen man and the courses of evil. He turns to the woman and he multiplies her sorrow in conception. Childbirth will now bring pain, pain in birth, pain in rearing, pain in nursing, pain in constant attention, pain in hardships, and raising children. She was originally created as man's equal, but now 
She is under her husband's authority. Yet there's grace even in this curse because those who she's put under authority of care for her dearly and love her. And the childbirth that she is to endure will bring about the seed, capital S, the Savior. Adam, his habitation is cursed. He's no longer in a state of paradise. Fruitfulness has changed to barrenness. His employment and enjoyment in that has turned to labor and toil and hard work and sweat. Food's no longer a delicacy, but a must for survival day in and day out. He is now living a life of suffering and misery. The body no longer will house the soul forever. The body will return to dust. And interestingly in Genesis 3.23, it first says God sends them out of the garden. In verse 24, it says, He drives man out. Don't you know we wanted to stay? How hard would it be to leave paradise? And God ends up driving them out contrary to what we wanted to do. There's no longer peace with God. There's no longer the privilege of the garden. We have lost communion with God. And the tree of life is now mentioned again. It's not destroyed, but we're banished from it. And angels guard any pathway possible to get to it. God is so displeased with man, and his distrust is so great, we can be no one nowhere near it. We no longer have the hope of possibly just plucking the fruit and eating from it. Those days are gone. We must now look for the promise of the seed that was given to us in the curse. That's where our hope and minds need to be. And should we look back upon those ages gone by? In my Bible, it takes about three pages to get to the fall of man. And then I turn, I actually did this ahead of time, but 1,505 is, page, is the New Testament. This thick is the record of God's further revelation, yes. But man wandering around in time again, fruitlessly seeking God and messing up. It's the age gone by. It goes through the flood, the patriots, Egypt, the nation Israel, the promised land, the judges, the prophets, the kings, the captivity, the exile. And finally we arrive at page 1505 the New Testament program, which is new. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus himself declares in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Our New Testament scripture this morning from 1 Peter says, He who himself bore our sins on his own body on the tree that we having died to sins might live for righteousness, whose stripes, who by whose stripes you were healed. We've seen the shows, you know, the Raiders of the Lost Ark, the Holy Grail in search thereof. 
but man should be looking for this tree in which we've been banished from. And the good news of the gospel is that it's the cross of Christ. There's the tree. The trees in the garden of Genesis were all planted by God. But at Calvary, in the innocence and ignorance of man, man himself plants this cross. Acts 5.30 says, The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you murdered by hanging him on a tree. And although both man and Satan would love to think that that destroyed the fruit, the fruit actually thrived. There was, the fruit was so full of life, it could not be stomped out that way. This tree of life in the old Genesis symbol was in the middle of a garden, symbol of a covenant. So is this tree of the cross in a garden. John 19, 41 says, Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. Wonderfully close to the garden is this tomb, both of which testify to us. The cross is empty, and the tomb becomes occupied for three days, and now it's empty. There is so much life in the fruit of this tree, it could not be contained by death, which we brought. The two trees in Genesis stood in the midst of other trees and in the Garden of Paradise. The tree of the cross is in the midst of sinners. We read in Matthew 27, Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and the other on the left. And those who passed by blaspheming him, wagging their heads and saying, You who destroyed the temple and built it in three days, save yourself. If you're the Son of God, come down from the cross. Likewise, the chief priest also, mocking with the scribes and the elders, said, He saved others. Himself he cannot save. If he is the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross and we will believe him. He trusted in God. Let God deliver him now, if God will have him. For he said, I am the son of God. Even the robbers who were crucified with him reviled him in the same thing. What a horrible testimony it is of mankind. Christ is mocked. The reappearance of the tree of life is being scorned. They're close enough to touch it. We've been shut off from it. And they look upon it with disbelief, scorn, and blasphemy. Our parents looked at the fruit of the knowledge of the tree, the, uh, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and it was pleasant to their eyes. But this fruit of the plant of the cross is declared as despised and rejected. The Peter verse today comes from Isaiah, who says this, He shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as root out of the dry ground. It means the tree is not going to be too pretty. He was of no form or comeliness, and when we see him, there's no beauty that we should desire him. 
He is despised and rejected by man, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of peace was upon him, and by his stripes you are healed. Though he's offered as a healing tree, we as men despise and reject it. In our natural state, we see no reason to run to him, to heal us. The tree in the, knowledge, the, tree in the Garden of Eden appeared to be good for food, but it proved to be great harm. But Christ says in John 6, 55, My food, my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. It is true drink, true food. We will not be disappointed in partaking of Christ. Our first parents were forbidden by God to eat the fruit, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. And she took. And she ate, and she gave. In Matthew 29, 26, Jesus took the bread, and he blessed it and broke it, and he gave it to his disciples. And he said, take, eat, this is my body. And then he took the cup, and he gave thanks, and he gave it to them, saying, drink from it. All of you, oh, the glorious wonder we enjoy from his instruction to partake and eat. The invitation is for all. There's no distinction. When Satan comes on the scene in Genesis 3, he's already a fallen being. We know from Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28 that he has fallen from some sort of paradise. He desires nothing more than to get men to eat that fruit. Come join me in this fallen state. Be my partner in crime. But for the cross, he earnestly desires for us not to eat. Paul warns us in 2 Corinthians 11, he, Paul says this, But I fear lest somehow, as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. It's a simple thing to Paul. Run to Christ. Flee from the liar of this age. Do not delay. The deceiver wants you to wait. You can do it tomorrow, he will say. But the danger is great in delaying in the partaking of the fruit of the tree of the cross. God, speaking of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, warns, For in the day you will eat it, you shall surely die. The tree resided in paradise. It stood in a garden full of goodness. But God, just as God has promised, this tree bought sin and death. This tree was not intended for man, but man took it and ate it. 
the tree of the cross, the fruit which it brings, this brings life, and not just life, but life eternal. It is for man. Christ says in 654 of John, Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. And he repeats in 658, He who eats this bread will live forever. This fruit is for you, and it brings life. Man, Adam, and woman, Eve, were thieves to take from the tree which God had commanded them not to partake of. Yet on Calvary, a thief is rewarded by Christ for his partaking of Christ himself. Then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Nothing stands in your way to eat from the fruit of the cross. The thief's arms were bound. He could not use them. The thief's feet were nailed to the cross. He had no use of his hands or his feet. Yet he partook of the fruit of the cross. And there's not much to be desired about the thief's life, right? He's a thief and he's being killed for being a thief. Other than we'll spend, see him in paradise. But this he has from just possibly a handful of men. He sees this tree full of fruit. It's empty for us today. The fruit has been ripe. But that day, he looked on that tree with it full of fruit. And that fruit on that tree was as helpless as him. His hands were bound. His feet were bound and nailed to the cross. And yet that thief saw a power in that fruit that would bring him to paradise. And he understood that that fruit had a kingdom and he wanted to be in that kingdom. Eating of the forbidden fruit caused misery, horror, shame, fear, sufferings in this life, on and on, sin and death. But Jesus says in 635 of John, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger. He who believes in me shall never thirst. He is our all in all, and all our cares and worries will be borne by Christ. He will wash clean the vilest of sinners. Probably the most horrible repercussion of the fall is our separation from God. Yet Jesus of the cross tree says, He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides with me, and I in him. Today, upon believing in Christ, you will be abiding with Him. He's with me daily, and He can be there with you too. Feed on Him, and feed on Him alone. In innocence, Adam and Eve, there was this liberty our parents had to partake of the forbidden tree. They could not, or they could we don't have this type of nature with us. Christ said some hard words in John 6:44, "No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day." The whole passage deals with those words from then on. People leave him. 
People depart. Jesus watches them go. And he comes back. He, he doesn't change the message because it's unpopular. He comes back in 665 and says, Therefore I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it's been granted to him by the Father. The power in God in creation is vast and wonderful. We see his magic as he creates and paints the universe and tweaks it a little bit. Most men see it and marvel. But there's even a greater power displayed when we witness a conversion of a soul. Creation's bringing something out of nothing, but regeneration is the transformation of a dead, sinning, sinning rottenly, unlovely, full of hate, programmed against the gracious designs of the potter. But the Holy Spirit enters into a man, into his heart, and he sees in the heart no love for him. The heart's filled with enmity against him. He hates the Spirit. He hates God, and he's incapable to come to the King of Kings. That's why when Jesus comes back to Peter as those are department, and Jesus asks Peter, do you want to leave too, Peter? And Peter says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Also, we have come to believe that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Folks, that is a miracle when you see that happen in this day, today, this year, 2017. You're witnessing one of the most powerful forces known to mankind. But God does not brutally drag us. He draws us. He works on our faculties of understanding, our, our affections, our desires. And He lovingly brings us to Him. The tree of life is mentioned to appear again before us in the new heavens and the new earth. It says in Revelation, John's vision, talking about the new heavens, and he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. And in the middle of its street, and on either side of the river, was the tree of life, which bore twelve fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations, and there shall be no more curse. But the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and His servants shall serve Him. They shall see His face, and His name shall be on their foreheads, and there shall be no night there. They shall no need of lamp, nor light of the sun, for the Lord God gives them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. All men will exist for eternity. But only a few, those who have eaten of the fruit of the tree of the cross will experience eternal life. That's just a piece of the vision of it. The cross stands empty. The fruit is ripe and prepared to be consumed. It brings peace, salvation, righteousness, holiness, forgiveness, unity, communion with God, love, healing, and eternal life. Today is a new day, a new year. Come and partake of this fruit of the tree 
Do not delay. Come, partake of Christ. Let's pray. Oh God, we uh, thank you for your salvation, for how you have provided it from Christ, how you have poured it upon our hearts and our minds, the fact, Lord, that we can turn from being your enemies to being your loved ones and that we can love you is miraculous to us. Help us, Lord, to believe and to rely on you more each and every day and forgive our unbelief. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.